This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. We care about your world. Stay tuned. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator. The guides the blind, following up with your ears, be your mind, and allow me to take you back on four feet time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guest this morning is Jessica Pierce. She's an affiliate faculty at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Medical School, and she's the author of nine books, including The Last Walk, Reflections on Our Pets at the End of Their Lives, Run Spot Run, The Ethics of Keeping Pets, and most recently, Jessica is the co-author of Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible. And she joins me now on the phone from Colorado. So, Jessica Pierce, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it sounds like the... The title of the book could also have been 10 Ways to Make Your Dog Happier and More Content. And it talks, um, sounds like the ethics of owning a dog are something, is something that has been um, very much on your mind at times. And I would love for you to talk about the ethical dilemma of owning a dog to begin with. Okay. Um, and I, I do apologize for my voice. Um, as you know, I've um, had a cold the last couple of days and 
at least today I have some voice, but I do apologize for the, the froggy sound. Um, so I have lived with dogs for pretty much my entire life. In fact, I'm named after my parents' dog, um, which I take as a badge of honor. Um, and, you know, as I have started writing over the past 15 years, 10 years about animal ethics in particular, um, it really became um, kind of a dilemma for me um, because I was aware, even though I give my dogs, I think, a really good life, I try really hard to be a good dog owner, I still feel like I fall short in a lot of ways. Like It's hard, just like being a parent, it's hard to be perfect dog parent and because they're just there are a lot of needs that they have and it's it's really hard to fill them and in particular and I think what what mostly got me started about this was um the experience of my dog Odie who I had since he was eight weeks old and and until he was 15 when he passed away and the last year of his life was really difficult because he he was suffering. He had a lot of physical maladies. He couldn't hear very well, couldn't see. He had laryngeal paralysis, which made him sound kind of like me um, right now. When he barked, he sounded like Darth Vader, and it, it made it hard for him to breathe. He couldn't walk very well. And he just, he looked troubled. And I found it was really hard to know how to how to help him um and even you know the more i learned about caring for an elderly dog the more i realized i didn't know and had kind of missed things that were pretty important and uh, that seems ethically problematic because you know we owe them really the best that we can give them so i my my last dog passed away a few years ago at the age of 15 and i was really concerned about his quality of life as well at the end and i felt like he did me a huge favor in in finding a way to end his life before that happened yeah <laughs> He did. Um, with with Odie, we, we weren't that fortunate, and we had to finally make a decision whether or not to to hasten his death. And we did actually decide to have him use a knife, and it was really, that was one of the most, probably the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life because you just don't, you don't know what's best for them, and you really kind of just, I mean, there's... I've come to really believe there's no such thing as the right time. There's there's a good time, but you know I felt like there was some target that I had to hit. Like if I did it too soon or I did it too late, I was really um, committing a huge ethical um, insult against him. And to take your best friend and end their life, you know I wasn't the one to push the needle in and push down the syringe, but I was the one to make the decision. And, you know, with our dogs and cats, 
it's really the, the only time in, at least in our culture, where we're given the power over life and death like that. Um, you know, and in smaller ways, what unleashing is about is that we really do control nearly all aspects of our dog's physical and social environment and also emotional environments. And, you know, we, at least most sort of urban dog owners, control when their dogs can go in and out and when they can go to the bathroom, when they eat, what they eat, who they get to socialize with, and often even in what manner they get to socialize. Um, you know, meaning, you know, if you go to a dog park and watch dogs trying to play with each other or sniff each other's butts, you see dog owners oftentimes kind of getting in the way of that and saying, oh, don't do that, that's rude, or you know, don't, don't mount that dog, that's rude, or you know, don't play with that dog, you're getting too rough, and really just kind of always putting these constraints on what they want to do. And so I think our, our ethical obligation to them is to give them as much freedom to be themselves as we possibly can, you know, within the constraints of them living in a human environment. Yes, their living in a human environment is is the big tricky thing. And you talk about how dogs are really captives in our human world, in our human environment. And yeah, and considering that that they are like our best friends and, and members of our family, we have a tremendous responsibility. We owe a tremendous responsibility to them. So I notice that everybody seems to have a different approach to the way they take care of their dog and the way they, they control their dog's lives. So I would love to hear from you about what you consider to be the biggest challenges for us, particularly people who really love their dogs, to to actually giving our dogs the best life possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that's the first thing I would say is that it is a daily challenge. So if it feels hard to you um, and it feels like you're not quite sure how to best give your dog exactly what your dog needs. You're doing things right and you're not alone. Um, and our book, Unleashing, is really, it's for people, as you say, people who love their dogs and want to do the right thing by their dogs. And there are plenty of people who, who don't. Um, you know, and lots of examples all around us of dogs who suffer from really extreme forms of cruelty and neglect. And, and those aren't what we're talking about. We're talking about people who actually really are trying hard. And it's, it is hard. Um, you know, one of the challenges that a lot of people talk about is just the challenge of walking their dog. And, you know, often that it's not an easy or stress-free experience. Um, you know, for example... I had a dog who passed away this summer named Maya, and she was a pointer mix. So she pulled on the leash so hard. And I, I tried everything in the book to train her not to pull hard, but she just did. So 
walking her on a leash was always slightly unpleasant <laughs> because of the, the hard pulling, but she still, she was having fun. And I just had to kind of give into it. And, um, and I did my best to find places to take her off leash because that's what she loved to do was just run. And I took her a lot on a lot of, I did a lot of trail running. So I, I took her on a lot of runs. And, you know, one thing that, that I will say, we say over and over in the book is each dog is really unique. And um, my dog, Bella, who currently still lives with me, she's about seven. She does not like to run. She's the only dog I know who actually does not like to go on walks. And I have to actually force her. And it's hard because she's slightly on the, the round side, if you know what I mean. Um, she's a little weight challenged. And so I kind of have to force her to get physical exercise, which doesn't feel very good because she doesn't seem to like it very much. So, you know, the compromise there is what she does love is to play frisbee. So we don't really go on walks. We just go play frisbee. Um, and that's what she loves to do. So I think just trying to understand what what your dog's needs are and doing your best to fill those needs. And seeing each dog as, as a unique person, if you will. Mm-hmm. There's also a language gap between humans and dogs. Like, we communicate through words and how do dogs communicate and what do dogs look for from us and from the world around them? What, because we, we all share the same senses, but they work differently in humans and in dogs. Right. And I think that's one of the, one of the keys to getting to know your dog is to, try to understand their sensory world from from their perspective. And you know, I think the biggest, most significant difference is humans are, are visual creatures. You know, our sort of primary stimuli are our eyes and what we see. And for dogs, they're olfactory animals. They experience things through their nose, through their sense of smell. Our sense of smell is so um, exquisitely sensitive that I think it's hard to even for us to even grasp or imagine what it is like for them to experience the world. But you know, when you um, when you walk with your dog, they're really seeing the world, if you will, through their nose. So one of the one of the favors that we can do our dogs is really give them time to experience the world in that way through their nose. And, you know, dogs will spend a lot of time on a walk sniffing. Um, there was one study done on sort of time budgets of dogs on walks, and they spend, given the choice, they spend about a third of their time just sniffing. Um, we might feel like we want to just get moving and get our, get our exercise for the morning, but what your dog wants to do is stop. And, you know, it's when they're stopping here, there, and everywhere, putting their nose down. It's kind of like they're reading the newspaper and reading the, the morning Facebook postings of other dogs who've left scent marks um, with pee. And, you know, one of the reasons that dogs like to sniff each other's butts is 
that they're gathering a lot of information about each other. You know, and that's something that's not humans obviously don't do. Um, and one of the things that I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I shouldn't let my dog sniff another dog's butt because the owner's going to think it's rude, but it's not. It's what they need to do to get information about each other and say hello to each other. So I think that's, those are some of the main, main sort of sensory differences. And I mean, we could go on for hours and hours about, about other aspects of this, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love the way you characterize the way dogs sniff the world and that it's it's like reading the daily newspaper, getting the news of the day and checking out. It's, yeah, it's the social media for dogs is... Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and dogs are very social animals. and And you talk about in the book how dogs really need to be given the space and therefore we need to f- to find um, ideal environments for them whether we live in the city or out in in the country you know we need to find environments where dogs can interact with other dogs and also to run free to to do what you know whatever they want to do what they- <laughs> Whatever mystery mystery activities they're doing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I do think, and again, I'll qualify this by saying, again, it's really unique to each dog. And there are some dogs who aren't that social, and for whom interaction with, for example, other dogs might not be that important, but interaction with other humans, maybe their human in particular, is really important. Um, you know, I think one one thing I will say is that the majority of dogs, what they want most is to spend time with their person. And it's perhaps the one thing that they don't get enough of is spending time with their person because, you know, we can go out into the world and go to work and go to school, um, go do errands, um, and our dogs are left at home in the same same old environment and so giving them a chance to you know it depends a lot on where you live you know if you're out in the boondocks it's a little harder to find dogs for your dog to interact with but there may be neighbor dogs um you know i could i could talk about dog parks a little bit dog parks are kind of i think they're kind of a mixed bag um and each dog park, at least in my experience, I've been to quite a few because we have, I live in Boulder County and we have a lot of dog parks and a lot of dog crazy people. Um, each dog park is really different. It has a personality of its own. It has you know, a, usually a, a clan of dogs who go there regularly and a clan of people who go there regularly. And some dogs like the dog park, some dogs love the dog park. Some dogs will like dog park A, but not dog park B. You know, I, um, Bella, my dog Bella, likes the dog park as long as there are fewer than about three dogs there. And if there are any more dogs than that, she gets kind of stressed out. She doesn't like the people in the dog park. So, you know, that, and for her, it's, it's not the most important part of her day. 
and for her preferable experiences having short interactions with other dogs on trail where you know she can take it or leave it um unless it's a really pushy dog in which case she'll just give a signal like leave me alone (laughs) that's too much um but you know for her it is important but mostly she wants to be with her people um and so i think knowing what what your dog likes and needs is important um my daughter's dog poppy you know she's got her whole other unique set of of quirks um you know she loves to play with other dogs however she has a thing about poodles um I know she's a, I'm not sure what the word would be, like a breedist, um, the dog equivalent of kind of a racist. She does not like curly-haired dogs for whatever reason. And so she's got to be on a leash when a, curly, a curly-haired a curly dog's coming. Um, but, you know, you can watch her signals, and she'll tell you really quickly if she's from 50 feet away, if she's going to like the dog who's approaching or not. Um, and you can kind of to make a judgment about whether or not to let them interact. Mm-hmm. I live out in in the boonies, but I used to take my dog to our local dog park. Well, it's more than just a dog park. It was a park, big park with, with a lot of walking trails. So a lot of people went there, you know, just to walk. But there were all people also brought their dogs and my dog loved this place and he loved sniffing everything but he wasn't particularly interested in the other dogs except for yeah. one, one dog he met there was one female dog that he met and he always got excited when he saw her and they would romp around and play together but she was the only dog that that I've ever seen him do that with that's interesting that sounds a little bit like Ella she she has about you know every 98% of the time she doesn't like to play but every now and then and I don't know what it is is something some special spark um, that they have together and you know I think if you see that that's great and you can hope to meet meet your dog's special friend as much as possible mm-hmm. so I would love to talk about the issue of leaving dogs alone and separation anxiety and what we can do about that my last dog, he, especially when he was younger, he suffered terribly from separation anxiety. When we left, he would stand there with, you know, his ears would be, his head would be tilted and he would be like whimpering. And it was so sad. You could just feel how yeah. much he was suffering at the prospect of us leaving him alone. And and we we left him free to, to roam. But... It was so painful for him. Yeah, it's that's I think one of the hardest um, behavioral challenges uh, that an owner and dog can face together. Um, Odie, the dog that I mentioned at the beginning, had terrible separation anxiety, and he the same thing, and he'd get this horribly dejected look. And um, you know, I I know this was a number of years ago, so it was before the time of, you know, little cameras that you can get now to set up in your living room, you know, $40 cameras. It's pretty cool to watch what your dog is doing while you're gone. 
Um, I, I hate to even imagine what Odie was doing. But one thing I know he was doing was destroying everything in sight in the house um, and getting into as much mischief as possible. I think because he was just so um, distressed by, by being alone. And, I, you know, ultimately, I think it was probably our fault that he developed separation anxiety in the first place um, because when we adopted him, we were brand new parents. We were young and kind of just freshly married and didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest. And, um, you know, I think for first-time pet owners, it's just a learning curve and you can't beat yourself up too much about what you don't know. You do your very best to read up and hopefully before the puppy comes home with you or the older adopted dog, but, um, you know, you're going to make some mistakes. But I think even if you do everything right, as it were, there, there's still a lot of dogs who suffer from separation distress. And I think what I saw a statistic recently, um, I may not have it exactly right, but it was something like 60% of dogs suffer from some level of separation-related distress. And that's just shocking. And you know, I think one one of the reasons there's so much of that going on is because dogs are left home too much and for too long. Um, and, you know, there really isn't any empirical study on how long it's okay to leave a dog. Um, I've researched this extensively trying to find an answer, and there's really not very much. Um, in the literature, but there's a kind of loose consensus, I would say, among behaviorists and veterinarians that around four hours is comfortable for a dog, um, or for some dogs, um, for dogs with severe separation distress, five minutes is even too much. Um, but, you know, the many, many dogs are left for, for longer than that. I have... Um, friend actually who will leave her dog for up to 12 hours in a crate which to me is just that's animal cruelty to be honest um just it's too much it's too long the dog gets a break in the middle of the day you know a dog sitter comes over and lets the dog out into the backyard to pee and to have a snack and then back into the crate and that's not okay that's that's not what dogs um need or want and um you know in terms of dealing with separation anxiety or distress if um if your dog has that problem um you know i guess my first advice would be to solicit help from an expert from a veterinary behaviorist or um, a really good trainer or veterinarian because there there are things you can try to do to help um to desensitize a dog and um, help them feel secure at home. And in some cases, severe cases, I think even medication can be really helpful for some dogs. Some dogs take Prozac for separation distress. And um, I think there are a lot, of, um, a lot of things we can do to try to help them if they have that problem. But, boy, it's, it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. We're in a, a rural area, and a lot of people have those electric fences with shock 
collars, and I ended yeah. up eventually doing that with my dog because for years he ran free in the neighborhood, and I would occasionally get complaints from from neighbors. And I mean, everybody really loved him, or he loved them. He particularly loved women, so he would go over and visit women, essentially, and <laughs> he would hang out with them. But I would, I would hear through the grapevine that they would complain that about him running free. They, they thought it wasn't safe. It wasn't. I wasn't being a responsible dog owner, and I just kept telling people, well. As far as I'm concerned, he has as much right to run free as I do or any of us do. And I remember one time one of one of my neighbors said, well, I suppose if your dog wanted to go to the movies, that would be okay with you. And <laughs> and my response was, yeah, if he, re- if he wanted to go to the, to the movies, I would think that was okay. And, <laughs> and actually, one time I was house-sitting in town and I had to go somewhere and I couldn't bring him often I would bring my dog with me where I when at most places where I would go so that he was with me but I I left him to run free in town I mean I left him at a house but I, I left the door open and he decided to walk down the hill into the center of town and he got picked up by the police and I got a a phone message saying that we have your dog in the drunk tank. Please come and get him. <laughs> and I was really when I when I finally got the message, I thought, uh oh, I'm going to get a a ticket for you know negligence or public nuisance or something. But when I went when I got down there, he was running free inside the police station, and everybody was smiling and and he had charmed <laughs> them. <laughs> That's great. That's so, a great story. So I'm wondering, so anyway, my dog got hit by a car at one point, and, and then everyone was like in a huge uproar, and I, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll get a, one of those electric fences with the shock collar, and I'm wondering what your opinion is about that, because my dog ended up getting traumatized by the, just the training yeah. for that. Because after that, yeah. I couldn't put him on a leash. Yeah. He, if I put him on a leash, for, for some reason, he would freak out. He would refuse to move. So I had to, I had to take the leash off, and then he would be fine. But he was terrified of being on a leash because his experience was he was going to be taken up to that, you know, that place where he would get shocked. Yeah. Oh. Um, well, I mean, for what it's worth, I'm on your side <laughs> here. And, I, you know, I think you were giving your dog a, a huge amount of freedom, and that's wonderful. And I, you know, I applaud that. And, you know, it's sort of like parenting, no matter. I mean, you make well-intentioned, well-reasoned, well-thought-out choices based on your values and your knowledge of your dog and people are going to always find fault with it and tell you you're doing the wrong thing um and i think you just have to as much as possible you know just brush it off um 
and I, you know there is always going to be a tension between what our dogs want and you know keeping them safe and keeping them um, happy, keeping our neighbors happy. Um, and I, I think it sounds like you did a good job of balancing that. And um, you know, related issue here is the, the question of whether cats should be outside. <laughs> And, um, you know, that's a whole other thing. But, um, you know, if you let your cat outside, I did. have some freedom. I did. And I, get, I know people yeah, you'll who, get who say that, by people. Yes, that that's like criminal. It, but I, I will admit publicly on the radio that my cat is an outside, inside cat. She has a dog door. And she's so happy. Um, and, you know, she, for a while, we had her as a fully indoor cat. Um, and the shelter actually made us promise that we would, and I thought that I was going to. I did have every intention of having her be only inside, but she was miserable. She mm-hmm. sat at the glass sliding glass door all day crying, and finally my husband and I just said, you know what, let's just let her have freedom and take her chances. And, and you know, like a lot of people will think that I'm a, abusive or neglectful but i think it's the right thing to do in that situation for my cat um on the question of uh, electric leashes um, or electric fences and shock collars you know i um i wouldn't want to make a blanket statement just because i think there are people who use them effectively and they allow some dogs to have a large measure of freedom that they wouldn't have otherwise. But on the whole, I think they're, they have the potential to be dangerous and traumatizing to dogs. Um, I see so many people around here with electric shock collars on their dogs who don't know how to use them. And you can buy them on the internet now. It used to be they were a little bit hard to get and you had to go to a pet store. So they just weren't as as common, but I see them on a lot of dogs. And, you know, I watched a guy not too long ago with a really rambunctious, sweet chocolate lab puppy who was maybe six months old, too young to know, really, to be able to, to have self-control. And the guy was calling the dog and shocking the dog over and over and over. And like this poor dog is going to have mental breakdown pretty soon. I mean, fortunately, it was a lab, and he seemed really happy-go-lucky and resilient. But it was like, you know, read the training manual first <laughs> if you're going to do that. Um, and, and be extremely careful about how you do it. Um, but I, I, I personally wish shock collars would go away. Mm-hmm. Um, electric fences, I, I would say, don't know as much about um, as shock collars, and there hasn't been as much media publicity. Um, shock collars are actually illegal in some other countries, and some cities in the U.S. are trying to ban shock collars altogether, and I have to say I think that's a, a good idea. Mm-hmm. It worked well once he was trained, which didn't take long, because I... I I gave him about three acres of 
of area that he could roam free in. And then eventually, after several years, the the line broke and it stopped working, but he 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 didn't realize that for another few years. And then eventually he discovered that that he was free to roam the neighborhood again. Um, so let's talk about punishing and scolding dogs and why that isn't an effective approach to training a dog out of unwanted behavior. Yeah, I mean, so that there's been a lot of research in the last decade, and especially in just the last couple of years on um, different training methods and how dogs learn. And the, the consensus that is emerging is that positive reinforcement is the most effective way to train a dog and that scolding and punishment are usually ineffective and also um, traumatizing for a dog. I mean, so the reason not to do it is, number one, you don't need to. There's no good training, essential training need um, that involves punishing a dog or scolding a dog. Um, So if you don't need it, why do it? Um, you know, same thing with with children. There's there's no reason to ever um, strike a child or yell at a child. There are much more effective ways to um, to help a child learn how to negotiate their world. And just yeah, same thing with dogs. And sometimes we lose our patience with our dogs. So it's, you know, just like our kids. Nobody's going to be perfect, and we end up yelling at your dog sometimes just because you get so frustrated and it's, it's hard to train a dog and some dogs are, um, are harder to train than others and it can be really frustrating. But you say, take a deep breath, count backwards from 10 and, you know, step away if you need to. And remember your dog is trying really hard to do what you want. And, we are coming back to how dogs communicate. Humans are, are really messy communicators with, with our dogs. And, you know, if you, if you read some books on dog training and take some classes, you'll realize just how messy a communicator you are. I, um, so a lot of dog training is really about training ourselves. Um, you know, maybe that you're, if you teach a dog to sit in the kitchen, your dog isn't necessarily going to be able to um, take that experience and know how to sit outside in the park. It's a totally different context. So don't get mad at your dog for not sitting at the park when your dog is really good at sitting in the kitchen to say, oh, we're in a different context now. Let's learn to sit in the park. Um, And, you know, really get to know it can be an interesting and fun challenge to get to know how your dog learns and, um, and, and how to work together. It's really, it's not teaching your dog or training your dog to be a good dog. It's um, learning to communicate with your dog. It's a mutual partnership and how to, how to negotiate the world together in a way that's, that's effective and safe. 
Right, a combination, a balance of taking care of your dog's safety and letting them be dogs, which is exactly which is the number one thing on your list of 10 ways to make your dog happier and more content is let your dog be a dog. And I would love for you to talk about what that means. And there's a huge challenge for us as human beings because we wouldn't know. We don't know what what being a dog is for a dog. And we don't we wouldn't recognize it necessarily because we're not dogs and we we can't really you know do that proverbial thing of walking a, a mile in their paws right so what that we can try <laughs> we can try but so what what does it mean to let a dog be a dog and how can we how can we best learn how to do that for the sake of our dogs so I think the, the first, that's a great question. Um, the first thing is to get to know about dogs in general. Um, you know, we read some books on the evolution of dogs as a species of, of canid. Um, learn about their wild an- ancestors, the gray wolves, and, you know, get to know who they are as um Wild. I'm putting wild in in scare quotes here because it's funny. Dogs are not they're not wild animals, but they're also not um, they're not people. They're somewhere in between, um, and kind of understanding who they are and what is a natural behavior for a dog is challenging. Um, so, because we can't just use the model of wolves, dogs are not. They're not wolves, and a lot of dog behaviors are different than wolf behaviors, but um, letting a dog be a dog is, you know, some of the things we've already talked about. Let your dog sniff as much as your dog wants. Let your dog interact with other dogs um, kind of on their own terms. Like, we don't always have to be interfering in in their business. Um, letting dogs just run and follow their own agenda on a walk. Um, I had a friend who, she had a, a Vishla who, it was always, it drove me crazy to go on hikes with her because we have a, we're lucky, we have a lot of off-leash trail area here. Um, so dogs are allowed free um, in a lot of areas. And her dog was a good dog and he actually came, had pretty good recall. But he was a Vishla, so he was really, he wanted to hunt stuff and literally every 30 seconds she would call him and make him come back to her and I'm like just let him be himself and do what he wants and you know stop bugging him so much so so i think letting them just be themselves and and do what they want and you know a lot of people i talked about people kind of interfering in dog interactions um I think a lot of people are afraid that interactions are going to be aggressive or are going to escalate into aggression, you know, especially play, which can, it can get pretty rough. Um, but there's, um, 
research on play behavior that suggests that less than um, half a percent, so almost never, does play escalate into fighting. So even if it looks pretty rough and tumble um, and even aggressive to us from the outside, dogs are just having fun. And so you don't have to always break up play bouts. Um, and letting them sniff each other's butts. We talked about that already. Um, I talk about in in the book um, that dog butts are for, for them a critical communication center. They have so much information. So, and letting them, you know, another example of something that is kind of hard for us um, as humans is to let our dog just experiment with things that they find to eat in the wild and, you know, with the caveat that you don't let them eat things that are obviously dangerous. Um, but, you know, Bella really likes to eat goose poop, which is disgusting. But, you know, what's the big deal about letting her eat a little bit of goose poop or a little bit of horse poop? I mean, just let them be themselves. Yeah, that can be really hard. I remember having that kind of knee-jerk response when I saw my dog eating my cat's poop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my response was, oh, that's disgusting. No, get away from there. <laughs> but then afterwards, I, I, you know, I, I had read, uh, later read that sometimes um, they're drawn to poop because their nutrients Actual nutrients exactly. yeah. that that they may and, be needing. Yeah. And and one thing that that's really hard for me is letting. Well, I don't really let her. I have to say I do intervene if I can catch it. But you know, the, on the mountain trails, people do poop in the woods. So and again, especially my daughter, my daughter's dog Poppy will if there is human poop within a mile radius, she will find it and eat it. And it's gross, but you need to remember that dogs evolved um, eating and still do where they live as free-roaming dogs, eating human waste, literally human poop. Um, so for them, it's not um, it's not going to kill them. It's gross. We might not want them to lick us in the face, but it's actually a pretty natural behavior for them. And and really not particularly dangerous. And also dogs have this this kind of embarrassing um, habit of liking to sniff people's crotches. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that you know, makes and, people very uncomfortable, <laughs> and, and yet that's such a natural thing for dogs to do. It is. That's, um, it can be really awkward if you have a dog who loves to do that. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, probably recommend training your dog not to do it um, just because it's a good thing if we can keep people around us liking dogs and, you know, enjoying their company even if they don't have one. And, you know, one of the things that I do see happening a lot around here, and it's unfortunate, is that, you know, when you have off-leash areas or hiking trails, people let their dogs run up everyone and anyone and you know jump on them and stick their nose in their groin and 
Well, not everybody likes that, and there are people who are, are quite afraid of dogs. So I think, you know, just for the, it, for the sake of dogs and keeping a lot of goodwill toward dogs, we need to keep them, um, teach them some rules of human etiquette, too. Right. It's so important for their safety and their well-being because bad things can happen to them at the hands of other people. Exactly. And it, it is definitely a major source of tension. I, um, I live in a small town and in a little community, and we have a community Facebook page. There are probably, I don't know, 40 houses in this little community. And I would bet that 70% of the Facebook posts are related to dogs. And some of them are, oh, hey, I found this dog out in the you know, open space between the houses. Who's, who does this belong to? Um, but a lot of them are about barking dogs or people not picking up poop. And, you know, that's unfortunate because then the people who are having problems don't like dogs and they don't want dogs in the community or they'll fight for stricter leash laws or regulations. And, you know, that doesn't help anybody. So be a good neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that reminds me of an issue that I have. I, I'm so glad that I don't have any dogs around me that bark incessantly. But, uh-huh. but there's, a, there's a place where I work where the owners obviously leave their dog chained up outside alone, and he just barks almost continually. And And I've learned to just put up with it but it's very annoying and there are certain breeds that tend to bark a lot and and that's another thing that that I think people need to do a little research about different breeds when they're thinking about getting a dog yeah that's a really good point and yeah barking is one of those things I mean it's it's a natural behavior and dogs they need to be allowed to bark it's how they communicate and um and there is a definite line between acceptable amounts of barking and excessive and irritating um, barking. And excessive barking is, is usually a sign that a dog is, is frustrated or bored or um, unhappy in some way. And so, you know, they're... That should definitely be addressed, but, you know, all dogs are going to bark to some extent, and that may be one of those situations where we have to curtail their freedom a little bit just for the sake of, you know, having reasonable relationships with our neighbors and with other people and keeping keeping goodwill going. Um, and those the, the Facebook posts that I mentioned in the neighborhood are almost always about barking dogs, and... I have lived next to a barking dog, and it can drive you crazy. Um, and, you know, you feel bad for the dog because they're obviously not happy. And you feel bad for yourself because you're going nuts. Um, and, you know, that's what a lot of dogs who wind up being relinquished to shelters um, for in these so-called behavioral problems, oftentimes it's excessive barking. Um and also separation anxiety, that's another another one of those biggies that, that gets that get dogs into trouble. Mm-hmm. And we have we have expressions like 
a dog's life and and some people often assume that dogs have it easy because we provide food and shelter for them and we take care of them and that they don't have to do anything. They can just lay around right. or do whatever they want. But but you say in the book, and you spell it out in ver- a lot of different ways, that the reality is often quite different for dogs because they are really captives in our world and they're often confused and stressed out by the circumstances and conditions of their lives that we're not aware of. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that that, that raises, one of the, the really important issues is, you know, we might think that we're doing our dogs a favor by giving them this life of indolence and, you know, all they have to do is lay around on the couch and we, we bring them a bowl of food at regular intervals and you know, brush their hair, and God, wouldn't that be a nice life? But it's actually not. It's boring, and, you know, they don't get to make any choices or do anything. Um, So it really isn't doing them any favors. So allowing them to have choices and also to work. Um, One of the things that we write about in the book is this research on, um, it's technically called contra-freeloading, but Basically, there's, there's a lot of research studies um, showing that given a choice between free lunch or free food and having to work for their food, animals will work for their food. Um, you know, pigeons, if they're given, um, you know, a, a choice between a bowl of food that they can just have or um, food that they can get by pecking on a lever, we'll peck on the lever. And the same thing is true for our dogs. There's there's an um, intrinsic reward from having to work for something, and we know that as people too. People who are are unemployed um, are often depressed and frustrated because they don't have meaningful work to do. Um, and you know, the same is true for dogs. They need jobs that give them satisfaction and that they find challenging. And that's that's another um, good reason to train your dog or teach your dog is that um, it's really satisfying for them to learn new things and be challenged. So what, can you give us an example of some things like that? Because I, the only things that come to my mind in that way would, and I don't know if this even applies, is like the way dogs will chase balls or sticks and bring them back to us, that that may give them a sense of satisfaction of, of having accomplished something. Are there other examples of what you're talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, doing some, ha- having a dog do a couple of tricks before giving them their dinner. Um, and with the caveat that I, you know, there's some trainers that that say you should never, ever give a dog a treat unless they've done something for you. And I don't agree with that. I think sometimes you just give them a treat because they're your friend. Um, but having them do some fun, interesting work for a reward um, can be really exciting for them. You know, Poppy, my daughter's dog, loves to... They'll go to the playground and Toppy will, you know, she'll go up the, up the stairway 
and jump off and jump over the fence and jump up onto the bench and she knows how to go, you know, around the tree to the right and go around the tree to the left and she loves to do this work um, and it's really, you can tell it's really satisfying for her and rewarding. Um, you know, another thing that I think can be good for some dogs are food puzzles where they have to use their brain a little bit to figure out where the food is or how to get it. Um, with the caveat that for some dogs, they can be kind of frustrating you know, if they can't figure them out or if they're not, um, you know, giving a, a dog who has a really big nose some, you know, where they have to get food out of a little tiny hole is going to be in, intrinsically really frustrating. So making sure that it's um, appropriate for the dog uh, but those are some some examples. Or, you know, one thing that, especially if you have a dog who barks, you can train a dog to bark on command. Um, and then it's actually a, a good way to reduce excessive barking or unwanted barking. Um, you give them the opportunity to bark sometimes. Um, and, and then they don't have to at other times. Um, and then, you know, it's rewarding to them there to, Barking because you have asked them to, and they're they're doing a job. Mm -hmm. I think. Um, sorry, I keep thinking of new things. Um, you know, some dogs really enjoy doing nose work or agility training. Um, there are a lot of ways to ask our dogs to to use their brains and their noses, and um, I think it's good for everybody. I'm talking with Jessica Pierce. She's an affiliate faculty at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado's Medical School. And she's the author of numerous books, including Unleashing Your Dog, A Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Companion the Best Life Possible. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So how much more time do you have right now? Um, I mean, I can go for another, um, let me look at the clock, probably in a, like another 10 or 15 minutes if you want. Oh, that'd be great. So um, you also talk a lot about the importance of play for dogs. Why, we know that, or we're, we're finding out in the mainstream how important play is for children and also now for adults. So yeah. why, why is play so important for dogs? So it's for a lot of reasons. I mean, the most important reason is that it's fun and fun is important um, for us and for our dogs. So, but a, a more, um, a fuller answer to that question is, so play is, it's an evolved um, set of behaviors or an evolved um, activity that all mammals engage in. Um, and they're even, I think, discovering that species sort of beyond the, the mammalian line also play. There's some interesting research on play in tortoises, for example. So play is something that, um, you know, it has an important evolutionary function. It's 
something that animals are highly motivated to do. You know, it's, it's most um, typical to see play in young and juvenile animals. Um, but as you note, it doesn't always stop there, and that's true for adults and also dogs. Um, but adult dogs often love to play and need to play. And, you know, it's, play is an activity where dogs can engage all of their senses um, at the same time. So they're, they're sniffing, they're using visual signals, um, they're communicating a lot to each other with, you know, for example, the play bout, which my co-author Mark Beckoff um, has done a lot of research on um, during his career. Um, this, this signal that dogs universally use to say, we're playing now rather than doing something else like fighting or mating, um, you know, where they kind of crouch down on their front paws and put their butt up in the air, usually wagging their tail, you know. So um, there, there's a lot of ritualized um, behavior of that sort involved in play. It's physically challenging. You know, you see them running full out and changing direction and jumping and twisting, and they're... They're using their bodies in in ways that are just that feel good and um, that are really good for them. They're using their brains. It's it's mentally challenging because they're taking in um, this stream, really complex stream of signals from other dogs, and you know even something as subtle as um, as the the state of another dog's fur. Um, you know, there's um, when dogs are excited, sometimes their their hairs will stand up on end. You know, this is called pyloerection. It's like when we get goosebumps, um, dogs will their hair will stick up like that. They kind of get like Poppy, my daughter's dog, gets she looks like a lion when she gets excited. She has this sort of a mohawk down her back. Um, so dogs are looking at at each other's fur, they're looking at each other's facial expressions, tails, ear position, all of this, all at the same time, moving really quickly and and constantly shifting. Um, and they're using behaviors like like mounting and biting and um, you know uh, putting uh, going down on their back, submissive behaviors in ways that, that are used in, you know, other contexts, but in the context of play also, they're clearly play. So, I mean, that's complex too, um, to know that the dog mounting you or putting a paw on your back is actually being playful rather than aggressive. So it's good for them physically, it's good for them mentally, and it's fun. You, you had just talked about um, the way dogs observe each other's body language and it made it reminded me of how i remember seeing dogs how dogs will look at human beings and they'll tilt their head like trying to figure out what's going on in this human being yeah. because human beings don't they they don't have the same things that dogs do, that dogs can look for, or that are obvious ah. to dogs, and and human beings can be very confu- confusing for dogs, especially in the 
in the command area and training area where where people are using words in one way and yet they can very unconsciously be using their body in completely different and often contradictory ways and that that can leave a dog like tilting its head and and which is which is like this universal sign of I don't understand I'm confused exactly yeah um that's a really good point and yeah there's been some interesting research on um well two that reminded me of two things one is um you know they've done some research on whether dogs are more attuned to human um, verbal commands or gestures so they'll have somebody you know pointing at a ball and you know giving a command or just pointing and giving you know a command that doesn't make sense um you know so when they're conflicting the dog is more likely to, to follow the gesture than the verbal command which i think is interesting so um, they are picking up on a lot of what you call composite signals from us. And as you say, kind of different and confusing because we don't use our ears the way dogs do. Um, I don't know very many people who can um, twist their ears around the way dogs can or you know, pull them back if they're feeling um, nervous. And you know, we don't have tails. We don't have fur that we can pilot erect. Um, so it is really different, but on the other hand, dogs have been living with humans for, you know, some disagreement, but roughly 30,000 years, and they've evolved, um, a lot of skills in reading human facial expressions, um, and figuring out what we want, because, you know, it's, it's really adaptive for, for dogs. Um, to be able to fully manipulate us um, and understand us. So I think we are, on the one hand, very confusing to them and messy signals. And on the other hand, um, you know, they're, they're really connected to us um, in, in their cognitive capacities, in their minds and hearts. So... Um, so it's, it's a combination. And my sense about dogs, and perhaps even more with cats, but dogs sense how we're feeling. They have a yeah. they, they have a kind of emotional intelligence, and I would I would love for you to talk about that. And perhaps you could begin by by defining what emotional intelligence is. So. Now we define it in simple terms just as the ability to to pick up on and accurately read the emotional states of other people or dogs and and respond appropriately um, and you know just like with with humans where you know some people you know I'm sure have have greater social intelligence than others. Um, you know, same with dogs. Some dogs are socially a little bit awkward. Um, and sometimes they're awkward with other dogs, and sometimes they're awkward with other people. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of, of 
for socialization and my dog Bella who we we adopted her when she was about a year old and we're not really sure what her first year of life was like but it seems as though it was not very good and my my suspicion is that she was kept in a crate and not allowed to interact with people or other dogs because she is extremely awkward socially and she just doesn't quite understand the signals that other dogs give and she doesn't really give clear signals herself for example when on the rare occasions where she does play with another dog she kind of growls the whole time like she's annoyed or angry and um at, at the same time she's playing so she's i think she's just confused and a little ambivalent about what's going on so i say her her social intelligence it's not that it's not um that she doesn't have a lot of innate sensitivity but her her learning was um kind of hijacked by early conditions that were not ideal and you know, there's been some, a lot of, a lot of studies of emotional intelligence in dogs, and they are extremely intelligent emotionally. And you know, one early study that I think is kind of telling: um, a woman was doing research on um, empathy in children, and she was so she had this set up in in people's homes, and she would have the parents kind of pretend to cry to see if the child would respond. And what she found, she wasn't looking for this at all, but what she noticed while she was doing this research on children was that the family dog would would very often kind of jump in and respond to this crying that that was going on. And the children were often like, who cares? (laughs) The dogs were really distressed by it. And um, so, that led her to do some research on, on dogs themselves, and um, I think that's pretty interesting. Just that they they are really attuned to what's going on, and you know, and often Bella knows that I'm stressed out even before I do. She just you just can tell she gets a little weird. Um, so you know, they're 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 very sensitive to our emotions and. I think our challenge is to be just as sensitive to their emotions, um, and it's it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you, another thing in the book that you talk about is that we can learn things from our dogs. They they can actually teach us things. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I mean this is the kind of the Zen moment or Buddhist moment. Um, in the interview, but I, I think more than anything, dogs can teach us to just be in the moment. Now, the caveat there is, you know, a lot of people say dogs just live in the moment as a way of saying, well, dogs don't have any sense of the past or the future, and that's just silly. They they do. They have strong memories and, you know, remember past experiences and also predict, predict future events. Um, and, and what's technically known as forecasting, but, um, you know, they know what's going to think about the future. And, um, but with that caveat in mind, um, they do, they're much better about just being here now. I don't know, you know, if, 
if you take them out on a walk, they're really present on the walk, um, sniffing, doing whatever they need to do for dogs. And um, we may be busy checking email messages or text messages on our phone um, and not really noticing the smells or the sounds or the sights on the walk. And so I think our dogs can remind us to just, you know, take in our our sensory world around us and be alert to it. You know, often our dogs will smell things or hear things before we do. And, you know, that can be um, a good teaching moment and a good, you know, I often take um, Bella and, um, you know, go out on trails here that are pretty far in the back country. And, you know, she gets a, Picks her ears up and gets alert to something, you know, I take that as a, a an important signal that I need to be alert to because we do have mountain lions and bears and other animals that, you know, I would rather not encounter on my own um, in the in the back country. Um, so and I think they can, we talked a lot about play and fun. I think they can remind us how important it is to play every single day and also eat a lot of treats. <laughs> so maybe we could learn to, to treat ourselves and, and treat ourselves better and enjoy enjoy everything. Yeah, enjoy life. Yeah. Smell, the, smell the roses, mm-hmm. um, literally, um, and smell the peace on the roses, too. Mm-hmm. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank you so much for all of your time. You are most welcome. I enjoyed it, too, and I apologize again for the sound of my voice. Well, there's nothing you can do about that. So do, do you have a website about your work and, and your books? And- I do, yeah. Um, it's just, it's easy to find. It's jessicapierce.net. And... Your last name is spelled P-I-E-R-C-E. And my guest has been Jessica Pierce. She's an affiliate faculty at the Center for Bioethics and Humanities at the University of Colorado Medical School. And she's the author of nine books, including Last Walk, Reflections on Our Pets at the End of Their Lives, Run, Spot, Run, The Ethics of Keeping Pets, and the latest book that she's the co-author of is Unleashing Your Dog. A field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible. And again, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful getting to talk to you about our our best friends. Well, thanks for having me today. It was a pleasure. Be well and um, bye bye. Bye bye. free 
Why not we Across the swooping plain My ears hear A symphony Best is always yet to come. That's what they explain to me. Just do your thing, you'll be king. If dogs run free. Thirsty 
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week.